Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Lauren. Mike. Have you ever had your genome sequenced? You mean like one of those kits where you spit in a tube and mail it off and find out that you hate cilantro and your father is not your father? Yeah, that's pretty much what I mean. I like cilantro, though. (laughs) I have done one of those kits, as a matter of fact. What did you learn about yourself? I learned that I am 33% cat. (laughs) That tracks. (laughs) Uh, Have you ever wondered about your genetic data leaking? I think about it all the time. And also, I think about where it goes if 23andMe or companies like it get acquired, right? Because someone has to absorb that data, and it's an entity that I wasn't planning on having my data. That's right. And I think you should be paranoid about it. Really? Yes. We're going to talk all about it today. Oh, boy. I can't wait. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I am Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We are also joined this week by Wired senior writer Lily Hay Newman. Lily, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's always a banger when you're on the show. People see your name in the show description and they uh, put the kids to bed and they lock the door because they know that we're going to talk about uh, cybersecurity and hacks and uh, cybercrime and all that lovely stuff. Yeah, maybe I'm actually a deterrent to listeners. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've ever been curious about your ancestors or what part of the world your family really comes from, you may have been tempted to send a bit of yourself to companies like 23andMe or Ancestry. You just spit into a little tube and mail it to the company, and within weeks, you get back a detailed map of your lineage, and if you want, the same map of other people that you might be related to. It's pretty cool, at least until that data falls into the wrong hands. That is exactly what happened with 23andMe. 
At the beginning of October, the company announced that it was hacked. And as a result, the names, birth years, and general descriptions of genetic data for millions of people were posted on hacker forums. The hack appeared to target specific ethnic groups, and the methods used to obtain the data appeared to be relatively low-tech. Late last week, the breach became even worse, with another hacker posting millions of more records on hacker forums. Lily, you cover all sorts of hacks and data breaches on our security desk here at Wired, and you've written about this 23andMe breach. What kind of information was revealed? So the data that was revealed is not raw genetic data, but it is information you know, that could give you a sense of who someone is and potentially identify them. So things like a display name, uh, sex, birth year, uh, and details about broad genetic ancestry. So something like broadly Arabian or broadly European, uh, and then potentially some more specific geographic ancestry information as well. So, you know, it's not the crown jewels, but it starts to really get into who someone is and some information about their background. So it sounds like it's specific to ethnic background and not necessarily like biomarkers for diseases or other medical conditions that might show up from some of these tests. Yeah, the way the data was collected on this broad scale was by scraping or collecting information that users had opted to share in this 23andMe feature called DNA Relatives. So the feature is all about, you know, helping you connect with other relatives and find people and is sort of like a social-ified service. Uh, So the actors who scraped this data seem to have searched under certain, you know, criteria, and that's how they uh, had broad buckets of information on Ashkenazi Jews is one category they were searching for and then scraping people of Chinese descent. There were about 300,000 of those. And then, uh, as we mentioned, the actor has continued to post more data, uh, both in those categories and kind of in a, a broader range. So, yeah, that's why it's clustered in those areas. But all of this information is geared towards what customers might have opted in to share with other 23andMe users. So it's not public to the public internet, but public within the service. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear for folks, when Lily refers to actor, that's a term used in the cybersecurity world to describe someone who's taking an action. For example, a bad actor is someone with malicious intent. We're not referring in this instance to, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) Although it would be quite a story if he was the one who hacked 23andMe. That would be a big scoop. Now, obviously, we can't necessarily ascribe motive, but we can guess why this actor would target specific ethnic groups and make that known in their announcement when they post the data for sale. Right. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons that it could have been done this way. You know, it could have to do with wanting to specifically expose, you know, people in those groups, like there could have been some sort of geopolitical or, you know, other ideological motivation. 
But also a lot of researchers I talked to speculated that things like this are often just for notoriety, you know, to try to, because this data is being sold on uh, hacker forums. And so a lot of times, you know, actors, there, there's that word actors, will do things like this uh, <laughs> simply to, you know, make their product more appealing or, you know, gain notoriety or get exposure, uh, you know, and, and bring attention to uh, like hawk their wares, essentially. So uh, it's possible that, you know, it was for some sort of insidious, like racially motivated reason, but that's not necessarily the case. How did the hacker actually get into people's accounts? And how much of this points to perhaps a lack of security on the part of 23andMe? So the company would say that that's not the case. They want to make the distinction that the way they say this happened was that a small number of accounts were compromised using a technique called credential stuffing, which is really just going through all these combinations of usernames and passwords that have been previously leaked or stolen and other breaches from around the internet not necessarily related to, you know, the victim or the target in question. And then actors trying those stolen credentials against all different logins. And the idea there is if you've reused a username and password on multiple accounts, the same username and password that was stolen in one place will let the attackers into your account in another place. Hmm. Uh, so 23andMe says that it's not a breach of their systems and isn't exactly hacking. It's like you know stealing the key and then just walking in the front door. You don't have to break down the door if you have the key. Hmm. The crucial thing there, though, is to get from those few accounts to you know all the millions of people whose data was impacted by this, that's where, you know, I use the term scraping. Uh, the concept is that then the attackers use their access into that small group of accounts to simply look at or pull up records that were shared with the accounts from the DNA relatives service and hoard a you know, massive amount of data from there. But so... How much is this a security issue and what does this say about 23andMe's defenses? It's an interesting area because scraping as a technique, companies can say and do say, like, that's not a breach. Users have to opt into sharing that information. Uh, they could choose not to share it. And uh, companies will say things like, we take measures to reduce scraping, but it's inherent in publishing data to a broad set of users or publicly, and we can't stop it completely. Mm -hmm. But when you're seeing scraping like this with a genetic service, it underscores what uh, researchers and privacy advocates have been saying for a long time, which is that scraping isn't just getting a copy of the phone book or something. These digital services make it really easy for actors to hoard and gather all this data. And, you know, we need to think about that and kind of take mitigating that risk seriously rather than just saying, well, it wasn't a breach of our systems. We weren't hacked. This isn't our problem. Hmm. 
So the data was posted for sale at a site called Breach Forums. Uh, what can you tell us about this corner of the internet? Breach Forums is a popular and well-known kind of clearinghouse for people to post all sorts of data and like tools, other information. And it, it fits into a broader ecosystem of, you know, hacker forums for advertising and, you know, posting data. Sometimes uh, it can, these forums can be used in like positive ways to just share information about potential concerns, but they can also be used at times to distribute stolen data, or at least advertise its existence and then actually distribute it elsewhere. Right. Mike's been hanging out there a lot. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't know. I can see his computer here at the office and I'm like, what, what, is, what is Mike doing at breachforums.com? Yeah. I, I lost the keys to my car and I'm trying to figure out how to get into it. It's totally, totally white hat, totally up and up, I swear. You don't have a car. <laughs> When Kalori and I see each other, he says, see on breach forums. And I say, not if I see you first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's take a break and we'll come right back. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machine, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. For years, companies like 23andMe and Ancestry have been collecting genetic information from millions of people. They've used it to generate massive pools of data about some of the most important things you can know about a person, where you come from, who you're related to what genetic conditions might run in your family. It's intimate, personal information gleaned from just a little bit of spit. Lily, I'm sorry for asking such a leading question, but should people be willingly sending their genes to these companies? Like, are all of our family trees already up for grabs now somewhere? So it's a really good question. It's the type of thing that, you know, you want to think about in terms of genetic testing, but that also applies conceptually to a lot of things. Ultimately, I think there isn't a clear-cut answer because it's it's more of a cost-benefit assessment of what you're getting out of it. First of all, in other contexts, people do genetic testing for medical reasons, right, to find out things about their health status, and that, that might be sort of urgent or, you know, very important. But even for sort of the consumer-facing more home tests, which also potentially have a medical purpose, but aren't necessarily 
you know, being prescribed or recommended by a doctor or something uh, like 23andMe, there still could be like a massive personal and, you know, emotional and psychological value to someone knowing more about the ancestry component or the, you know, finding relatives, finding biological connections. So I I don't want to sort of minimize or downplay and say, well, these are just like curiosities and it's become way too mainstream and people shouldn't be using it because I, I don't think that's the case. But if there isn't a specific and compelling reason to do it, or if there, you know, aren't these sort of pressing personal questions that people are, you know, wanting to get some insight on, I do think it's really worth taking a pause, especially for services that have this social component. Like, I think that's really the tie-in to this breach. And like I said, this can apply to a lot of things. If there's a social component to a service where to really be able to use it and get the full you know, feature set out of it, you're going to need to opt into sharing data, not just with the company, but like with other users and a broad network of users, you start to encounter these issues, the same ones that the, the sort of traditional social networks have grappled with about social graph and what else can be gleaned about you and kind of a cohort of people that you then can be grouped into from that data that you're sharing semi-publicly with other users. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what this incident with 23andMe really underscores. You know, I was wondering about the fine print in some of these apps like Ancestry or 23andMe that people should be aware of in the event of some kind of partnership or acquisition. Because years ago, I was writing a lot about health and fitness apps that were very consumer facing. And like one by one, a bunch of them got acquired. They were not sustainable businesses on their own. It was hard to convince people to pay for a subscription service to use like a just a you know, your favorite running app or something like that. And I had signed up for and used all of them. And all of a sudden I thought, okay, great. So I guess Under Armour owns all of my data now. Google owns all of this fitness data now. Um, What should people know about what happens if 23andMe or other entities like it end up getting acquired someday? Where does that data go? I think... The crucial concept in general, which you know ties into what we've all just been talking about, is that once you release data into the wild, it can't be put back in the box. You know, that's just the core of what the stakes are for something like genetic data. But again, you know, could apply to other things too. And it's hard, but I try to be thoughtful about it you know, in every context I can think of, like, well, what if uh, I make a shared calendar with someone, you know, to coordinate about whatever workout schedules, and then, you know, that means they have that data in their calendar app, and I have it in my app, you know, so I think thinking through just that on off switch or that binary of once it's out there, it could be stolen. It could be sold to another company. Though you can just keep riding that wave to places you never even 
you know, would have thought of on the day that you spit in the tube. Yeah. You know, when you do spit in the tube, you do have some choices about how your data is used uh, by the company, right? You can consent to allowing your data to be used in research, uh, particularly for pharmaceutical companies. Uh, There are partnerships between the companies that collect and process your genetic data for you and the companies that develop drugs that work on people with specific conditions. So when a user submits to that, and they say, yes, you can use my data. Before your data is passed along to the partner company, it's anonymized and aggregated. Uh, can you explain briefly what that means? Like, what does anonymized data look like? And is it truly anonymous? This is a big topic. I mean, the, the basic concept is stripping like the personally identifiable components away so that what's left is data that is about you but could be about anyone and can't be specifically linked to you so you know without a bunch of your speci- your name you know your specific characteristics your hair color let's say like opsec breach here i have brown hair <laughs> you know the fact that that data point in the data set is my brown hair versus someone else's brown hair is stripped away or becomes anonymized when it's not no longer connected to like my name, my birthday, whatever, you know, other things about me. So that's the concept, you know, is, is to strip that away. There have been a lot of studies and a lot of research on the specific techniques that are used by different companies that even have been invented and exist abstractly to anonymized data sets. And often the conclusion is that there is some reverse engineering that's possible and that the, the information has not been totally anonymized. Um, so that's one factor to consider. But another thing to consider is, again, you know, this 23andMe data dump did not include like raw genetic data. But in the case of raw genetic data, you really have to pull the information very far apart, you know, and isolate specific things in order to anonymize it. Because if you just have a leak, again, hypothetically not in this situation, of full genomes or even like segments of, you know, someone's genome, that is the ultimate identifying information. So even if my name isn't on it anymore, there's another data set that does have my, you know, genetic information that does have my name, that anonymized data set can be linked back to me. Right. All right. Well, Lily, thanks for taking us through all of this stuff. I know it's it's hairy and uh, you're still reporting on it, right? Yes. Uh, more is still coming to light about this incident. And, uh, you know, as you all brought up the broader questions around genetic privacy and uh, the privacy implications of scraping are just huge topics that uh, we're continuing to delve into at Wired. And we look forward to reading more of those stories. Everybody can find them at Wired.com. Let's take a break and we'll come right back with our recommendations. Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and 
other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. Okay, Lily, you've done this a few times. You know how it works. And you're prepared, I'm sure. What is your recommendation for our listeners? I like that jab as if perhaps I am not prepared. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I'm sure you're prepared. Um, I would expect nothing less. My recommendation this week, you know, there's a lot of really heavy stuff going on in the world. And so, you know, I wasn't sure, like, should I recommend something very intense or, you know, like a humanitarian thing? Or should I recommend something really light, but I don't want to be too jokey? So I I am going to recommend something light, but something that has been just grounding for me and helpful to me lately, which is a type of tea. Uh, mm. It is not a magic tea. It is a normal tea. Uh, and What's a magic tea? Uh, I think she means like psychotropic. Like a hallucinogenic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean. You can recognize. Okay. Yeah. Like, Please continue. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, have me back on the show. Like, we'll see what happens next week. But <laughs> Done. <laughs> But this week, I'm just recommending, you know, regular tea. Uh, This was tea that was gifted to me by a Wired colleague, uh, Matt Burgess, on the security desk, and imported for me from the United Kingdom, where he lives. It's Taylor's of Hargate Yorkshire Tea, and specifically, it's a... uh, novelty flavor called multi biscuit brew so i call it biscuit tea and does it have caffeine in it yeah it's a black tea um but you know normal it's not like a huge amount of caffeine just the normal black tea amount i think but then it also has uh this sort of toasted malt grain in it that makes it taste like eating tea and biscuits all in the tea and it's really delicious and normally i you know for me i was concerned that i that this was my one box ever you know until matt comes back to the us and that i would never be able to get it again but then i saw that it actually is sold online from some importers and is not that unreasonable on amazon so, you know, I, I, depending on where people want to buy their tea, if you're in the U.S., there are options. And if you're in the U.K., I think you can buy it at grocery stores. Uh, Yorkshire Tea Multi Biscuit Brew. It's just delicious and uh, very comforting. It sounds great. Do now, you have to put milk in it? I was just going to ask that because <laughs> our colleague Jeremy White came on the show a few months ago now to talk about Tesla. And his recommendation at the end was related to tea. And he had very specific directions around this. He's also British, by the way. Uh, Lily, do you put milk in your tea? Well, now I've gotten myself into trouble because I think the answer is yes. 
you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that is a requirement. And I think it, so Matt and I brewed some of this tea when we were at the Wired New York office a few months ago and, you know, he brought the tea and we put milk in it there because I think he, that's just what is supposed to happen. And he, you know, spearheaded that initiative and it does make it more biscuity in a way. I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but I personally typically don't put milk in my tea and I just um, drink it black or whatever you would call it. Um, And the tea is great that way too, though I'm sure I'm, you know, revealing my ignorance somehow by saying that. I think you should drink it however you prefer it Mm -hmm. because then you're drinking tea instead of not Mm -hmm. drinking tea. I think Jeremy's remarks were not necessarily about milk or no. It was about the order (laughs) With which you put the milk in, right? If I remember correctly. Uh, He has strong feelings about milk. Strong feelings. Yeah. Which I don't agree with either. Hmm. Anyway, Lily, thank you for that. Great. Refreshing. Recommendation. Biscuity recommendation. (laughs) Lauren, what is your recommendation? First, I want to give a shout out to the folks who sent me workout playlists. On last week's episode of Gadget Lab, I said that I was really tired of my exercise playlist on Spotify. I put a call out. And I got some really wonderful recommendations. So I want to say thanks in particular to Pat, Leo, and Shannon. Um, Also to you, Mike, because you were, I think, the first person who sent me a workout playlist. And it was was a death metal playlist titled Run or Die. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure if actually I have the rights to play this on the show do we have boone i'm looking at boone our producer is it possible for me to to play this and not and get in trouble not getting i've been i've been told by our lawyers that fair use is not a determination we make this is breaking news it is like yeah makes you want to run makes you want to work out i i must admit i didn't i didn't really listen to this one yet (laughs) Uh, I went through the list of artists and I thought, nope, don't know that. Nope, don't know that one. Don't know. Nope, don't know. Nope, nope. Oh, Blood Incantation. I know them because Mike just went to their show. That's literally the only reason. So, uh, oh, such a great band. Uh, yeah. uh, right. Well, thank you very much. My actual recommendation this week, it is, we should have like a little intro music for this. Oh, okay. It is time for Pasta y Chechi. <laughs> <laughs> Longtime listeners of the show will know that in the past, both Mike and I, I think, have recommended this New York Times cooking recipe. Uh, it is called Pasta e Ceci. Uh, you can look it up, Pasta e Ceci, Italian pasta and chickpea stew. I believe my Italian people call it Pasta Fazul. Mm-hmm. This is what it is. It's delicious. It is just the perfect, if you like Italian food and flavorings, perfect late fall, early winter stew. Yeah. So it's really more like a stew. It's not just a soup. It's not like minestrone where there's a lot of water and right. water-based vegetables. It's thick. It's hearty. You can put different things. You can add some bay leaves to it. You can put some rosemary in it for flavor, which the recipe calls for. You can red pepper. You can adjust the red pepper. I like to put a little bit of cheese on top of it. Occasionally an avocado, but that really makes it pretty hearty. And Mike, you've mentioned before, it's great for freezing. Yes, you can cook it and freeze it and then eat it like every third day or every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And depending on how much red pepper you put in this thing, by freezing it, 
and just letting it all sort of soak in. It could be, it really packs a punch. Mm -hmm. So just be careful with the red pepper, I would say. Nice. That is my recommendation this week. Try making that stew. Pasta fajoule. Pasta fajoule. And then um, another thing you made, I don't think there's an official recipe for it, but one time you and Boone were over and you made that incredible pasta with um, capers Mm -hmm. and what else was in it? Tomatoes. Well, yeah, it was tomatoes. It was tomato sauce base, but it was delicious. (laughs) Is that like an official recipe? Uh, I think it's just the kind of thing that uh, you just sort of learn as you grow up in an Italian American household. Yeah, just throw it together. Some good peasant pasta. Yeah. All right. Well, that's. I guess that's a side note there. Sure. Is this a recommendation or just making us jealous that you all hang out and eat great food? (laughs) Uh, Both. Both. And listen to death metal. And well, some of us. Mike, what's your recommendation this week? I am going to recommend an episode of the New York Times Popcast. I guess it's sort of a a, a New York Times playlisty theme this week. Maybe you could listen to this while you're drinking your tea. Um, it is an episode of the Popcast, uh, which is hosted by John Caramonica, the uh, the the chief pop music critic at the New York Times. This episode came out a couple of weeks ago on October twelfth. It's called Do We Need Album Reviews Anymore? And it's a 45-minute hour-long conversation between Karamonica and Jamie Brooks, who is a recording artist and a writer uh, and an all-around swell person. They talk about the future of music journalism at first, but they also fascinatingly talk about how the technologies of the day have changed the artistic decisions that people make when they create music. Like, for example, during the ringtone era, you know, late 2005 to about 2010, when you could load, you know, ringtones onto your smartphone, uh, that changed the economics of the music industry. And it changed the way that people put out songs in the streaming era, you know, playlists, singles, the importance of those things, really short songs, short albums, so you can rack up plays. All of those technological innovations in the way that people consume music has changed how music sounds. They also just talk about the economics of making music and how that's changed and the role that like the critic plays in that world. Like there's conversations online whenever an artist releases an album and like that just doesn't happen as often anymore. It's a really fascinating conversation, especially if like you grew up reading record reviews or if you grew up anticipating album releases. You may not think about it that much, but the way that those things have changed over the years is really radical. It's very different now than it was even like 5 years ago just because of streaming. So, it's a great conversation. Overall, a great podcast. I recommend a subscribe and follow on the podcast, but that episode in particular uh, if you if you spend any time making music or thinking about music or just if you if you love to hear people talk about it. Do you think we need album reviews? I do. Why is that? Uh, they're crucial for discovery. Uh, they're also crucial for the albums that don't get a lot of attention. Like there's a lot of people in the sort of underground world, uh, maybe in like the what we used to call like alternative rock world, who still consider albums like a important artistic statement. Uh, they are a very particular kind of artistic statement that I hope does not go away. And the best way to find them is to have the tastemakers in your life, the people that you trust, tell you about them. Uh, so I love albums and I love reading about how an album works. 
So album reviews are a big part of that. Also, shout out to our sister our publication at over at Pitchfork yeah. who have built an empire on album reviews. But um, I'm sure they feel the same way. And, and you know, not not just being a homer. This really does uh, resonate with me. Hmm. That's a great recommendation. Thanks. I hope everybody checks it out. All right. Well, Lily, thanks for joining us this week. It is my pleasure, as always, to be here. All right. So great to have you, Lily. It really is. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on the social medias. Just check the show notes. Our producer is Boone Ashworth, and we will be back with a new show next week. And until then, goodbye. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.